Hello, hello everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about navigating venture capital, AI, and innovation going into Q4 2023. Today, we have our guest, Anupam Rastogi, joining us. Anupam is a GP general partner at Emergent Ventures, which focuses on seed and early stage ventures, including in transformative AI-powered SaaS and enterprise infrastructure companies. They invest at pre-seed, seed, C-plus, and post-seed rounds across enterprise and B2B software, including application SaaS, cloud, data, infra, security, vertical SaaS, and DevTools. Over the past decade, Anupam has led or played a substantial role in over success, 20 successful tech investments globally, ranging from early to expansion stage, and has has had several large exits. So welcome, Sonifa. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So we chat a little bit before the, the the episode recording that you mentioned. You've been investing in the AI space uh, since 2010, and you're obviously based in Silicon Valley. But we'd love to hear from you. You know, with boots on the ground in Silicon Valley, what's the current sentiment in Silicon Valley about AI compared to you know 10 years ago when you started? Yeah, like you noted, I worked on my first AI-related deal in 2010, and then at Emergent. We've been investing exclusively in AI-powered SaaS businesses since 2016. And we are investors in about 40 uh, SaaS companies across the board, application layer, infra infra layer, and actively investing uh, in the AI space for the last six plus years. I'd say, how does the sentiment look today? Uh, It's a tale of two words. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some segments, some sub-segments of AI for certain kinds of founders, for certain kind of businesses, it almost feels like 1999 or 2021. Uh, but those are very few segments and certain scenarios. Uh, I think broadly, we're past the peak uh, uh, of the hype cycle. It feels like both overall, but also you know within the LLM and AI space, we saw a very significant spike in interest uh, over the last 12 months or so, uh, especially after ChatGPT came out and people started to think about the application infrastructure around it. And now it's time, I think, for delivering some actual real value. And, um, you know, of course, we've seen a lot of prior cycles as investors and also as uh, operators uh, and and notably, you know, things like mobile, social cloud, but then also autonomous vehicles, ARVR, crypto and others. And mm-hmm. some of these have, you know, panned out uh, very well, uh, you know, areas like mobile and cloud uh, and some others, maybe not as much yet. Uh, we do think, you know, AI is here for the long term. I think it's going to transform a lot of things as we know it in the way work is done, how we live our lives and beyond. Uh, so, if, yeah, if you're building something of value uh, and and have the, you know, right dynamics around what you're building, uh, uh, the level of ambition, interesting market, I think there's ample capital right now in Silicon Valley. For, for the AI. I mean, there's also seems... So from some of the recent deals that have gone through in the AI space, I mean, valuations are at an all-time high. I mean, people are asking kind of whatever they want. It seems there's a lot of hype and, and uh, excitement around this space. Are you guys also seeing that in terms of you know, the valuations you guys are, are seeing for the AI companies being launched? Yeah, I'd say in a small subset, a very small subset of companies of a certain kind, um, that is true, where mm-hmm. people are seeing this as, you know, almost a, gold rush that's going on and you want to be the there at the ground level of that or at some level of that. And uh, for the for the right types of companies, you know, folks have seen 
you know, the valuation of OpenAI and others skyrocketed in the last uh, year or so, and uh, they don't want to miss that. But I'd say, uh, you know, some of that happens at the beginning of a cycle. Uh, we, we are starting to see, I'd say, in the last couple of months, some level of rationalization coming in. And I'd say a lot of the smarter investors already made a lot of the AI bets before this current, uh, mm. you know, media that started about mm. 12 months back and are being pretty judicious uh, about thinking about where's the real value that's going to be created and applying yeah. true filters of, hey, can this really, is this something of very high value to a large set of customers? Uh, and then, you know, pricing things based on that and, and taking calls based on that, I'd say. But yeah, certainly, I think there's certainly a set of companies which are uh, raising very large amounts at extremely high valuations. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised now. So, you know, having an idea, being in the you know AI market, um, obviously one important check in when it, uh, of deciding to invest in the company, right? So you're understanding the market. Uh, the other side is obviously looking at the founding team. What what are you guys typically looking at and helping you guys differentiate and understanding you know, what is the ideal founding team or founding uh, founders you're looking at when it comes to early stage VC investments? Yeah, at the stage we come in at, I'd say, you know, the founding team is by far the most important factor in mm -hmm. our investment. And that's, that's uh, you know, along with, of course, the market and uh, how attractive that is. But yeah, we spent a fair bit of time trying to really understand uh, the founding team. And I'd say I'll give you what stable stakes first very quickly. Uh, you know, of course, it's about, you know, big vision being able to have that reality distortion field around the vision and make things happen around that. You mm -hmm. know, just the smarts, ability to put in the hard work, communication and stakeholder management ability, ability to convince your customers, investors, employees to join you. And then of course, depth of understanding about the problem that you're solving, either through prior domain expertise or through just sheer, you know, uh, hard work and talking to a lot of customers and building depth about a space. That's table stakes. You have to have that, I'd say, mm -hmm. to be running. In addition, I'd say what we look for and I look for at Emergent uh, is also a lot of things on the softer side. And uh, I'll give you a few of those. Okay. And one thing we look for is, you know, is this someone or a set of people that are learners on a strong trajectory of personal growth? Because no matter what you're building, you will, if you are to take this company from where you are today to, let's say, 100 million ARR business in seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be a lot of things you need to learn. And that's not just in the domain or in the specific technology, but also a lot of software skills. So being able to lead people, being able to manage very large organizations and other things. So we trans want to, you know, we want to see evidence of people having done that, where they've gone in and learned things that they haven't done before. Mm. The second would, uh, would be really, you can call it great resolve of perseverance, which I think really separates out a lot of companies that end up winning uh, versus those that don't. You know, every startup that I've been involved with that's had a great trajectory eventually has gone through some really hard days and mm. entrepreneurs that are able to persevere through that and find ways out of that. Those are the ones that we end up seeing as the big, you know, public companies of today. And they were mm. oftentimes equally worthy competitors at the same time that just gave in at some point. The third would be really ambition for building a venture scale business. Again, mm -hmm. in our case, you know, we're really looking at that ability to get to that and desire to get to that 100 million ARR. And you know what? I think in today's world, there's 
more 20 million, 30 million, 50 million potential ideas than they've yeah. ever been at any point in history. Right. And that's a great outcome for a founder. But we're looking for those who are really singularly driven to keep going beyond that and you know build that 100 million ARR plus business. Uh, and then I'd say fourth is a balance of optimism and realism. Founders have mm-hmm. to be really optimistic people inherently, just like investors. But at the same time, someone blends that with a dose of realism when they know something is not working or what works, what's not. Being really, that's what enables you to hone in into that product market fit and know where things are working and where they're not. And then last but not least, I'd say the most, one of the most important pieces is integrity. I think that just goes, that's, I'd say, all the others are factors which, you know, there's a scale for those, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some combination of those, but I'd say integrity is one which has to be there. That's a must-have uh, from a, our partnership perspective. And that includes, of course, the obvious stuff that, you know, that there shouldn't be any fraud and things like that, but also uh, making sure, you know, there's no overreach and and also i think includes things like uh, which relates to the previous point of knowing when things are working when they're not working and where they are at being able to recognize where things are today so those are i'd say yeah it's a long list and a mouthful but uh, you know that's actually a set of things that's a that's a that's a great list i mean the only issue is some of those you mentioned i mean i completely agree with all, the whole list but some of them are harder to see you know when it's just a pitch deck and a presentation Right, and all these take time, and you know you're taking that risk that you know you hope you'll see it. Hopefully, you'll you'll see those uh, as time goes on. But yeah, if, if they have that track record, then it's easier. Yeah, so that's uh, those are areas we're trying to get some sense of during the you know few weeks typical process that we engage with the founding teams, and we encourage them to do the same with us. You know, evaluating if we are the right partners to work with them because you know you know what it's a long journey. Uh, you know, yeah. things go well. This is a seven to ten year journey. And you really have to, so, so yeah, we do spend some time getting to know the founders and try and pick cues on some of these softer side uh, skills or, you know, the softer aspects as well. And can you go maybe a little deeper on that? What, is, what does that mean in terms of getting to know them? Are, are, are all the founders you're investing in, you know, locally in the Silicon Valley area or, you know, if they are across the U.S., are you, do you go there and you know, spend some time with them or do they typically come down and you expect that, you know, you know them in person or has it all been, you know, still very virtual and... Uh, assessment. Yeah. You know, one interesting fact is that we have been very remote f- friendly at Emergent mm-hmm. Ventures since day zero. So since before the pandemic, since 2016, we've actually made multiple investments without ever meeting the founding mm-hmm. team in person. Yeah. Of course, mm-hmm. that's not all our investments, but we are pretty happy to invest without meeting in person. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean we're not spending time. So we do spend a fair bit of time on Zoom calls and uh, both directly with founders, but also you know, we facilitate meetings for founders with mm-hmm. uh, folks from our network who could be relevant mm-hmm. as prospective customers, prospective hires, advisors, or others who know the space. And often we'll sit through those meetings. And, uh, you know, that that's a great way for us to learn more about the business, mm-hmm. make us smart on the business, but also get to know the founders and for them to, you know, get to know us. And, uh, but yeah, to answer the other part of your yes. question, all of our companies are... U.S. market facing because that's where we specialize. That's where we can help them most. But we do have founders who are building in other parts of the world. And we do like that a lot. Founders are able to leverage talent pools and other emerging tech hubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're really passionate about building a Silicon Valley company over time that can scale in a you know venture style. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we can work with them. Makes sense. So 
I mean, not, not, not very ideal for, you know, bootstrapped or, you know, bootstrapped or lifestyle type businesses, but the ones who really want to shoot for the moon and can leverage teams across the world. Yeah, that, that's always super valuable, right? To get better leverage of your, your capital. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, some companies yeah. can be bootstrapped. In our portfolio, we do have some companies which were bootstrapped in the early days up to a certain oh. point. But at some point, they decided that, hey, look, now we've found some level of early success. Mm. And now we want to raise, we want to get on the venture path and switch gears, accelerate growth, and aim for the moon. And, mm. and that works well for us as well. And there's some others who just decide to start a company on day zero and they know it that they want to build a venture scale company and mm -hmm. uh, we invest in those companies as well, of course. Yes. Now, where do you kind of see the venture market, the VC space in general, likely to head in the, the next few years compared to you know, the last, last uh, you know, 10 years or so? Yeah, crystal ball is always hard, you know, but let me mm -hmm. give you a sandwich. I think sure. 2021 was, of course, one of the hottest venture markets that we have ever seen, probably the hottest venture market because 99 was a much smaller market. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the impact of tech across business and all aspects of our lives, I think that just continues to increase rapidly. And that's a long-term, multi-decade thing. And that's here to stay. So I think 2021 was a lot of the zero interest rate policy era, uh, which mm -hmm. fueled a lot of that surge in capital. Uh, market is definitely a lot slower right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But, you know, 2021, that attracted a lot of tourists into the market in terms of investors. I think everyone wanted to invest in startups and raise funds. And But you know, this is a hard business. So uh, yeah. I think we're going through a much needed period of cleansing or you know just more normalization of the market. And mm. overall, I think that's really good, both for the venture market and for startups, because uh, I think after this period, what may happen is that we may have fewer firms, fewer folks investing as the tourists leave and mm. I think who will be left standing would be folks that are really long-term oriented and in it for the long game mm. part of the entrepreneurs so I do feel I think given the what I said earlier that uh, you know in sort of this multi-decade trajectory with uh, AI LLMs and many other technologies just going deeper in our lives and there's a lot of risk capital world has seen a lot of returns so I do think there'll be normalization where venture activity will pick up and we're starting to see some green shoots around that. I don't know if it's too early to call it, but uh, in as of at least Q2, uh, a lot of companies are reporting a bit stronger performance now compared to the previous three quarters before that, both in the public markets and private markets. And we are seeing a lot more activity in venture, especially in the AI and LLM space. So I do see being a more normalized market and I do think there's going to be ample capital for ambitious entrepreneurs who want to build uh, transformative companies, I think there's going to be ample capital in the next few years. Yeah. And when it comes to, to AI, I mean, there's a lot of you know, conversation around, you know, understanding of how it'll replace, be replacing jobs. So, you know, what kind of jobs do you foresee uh, the, you know, the AI will be replacing and or will it, and who will be the biggest, you know, winners and maybe biggest losers from that outcome? Yeah, good question. I'd say the filter I put on it is, or let me start with the prelude that, uh, you know, the current era of AI is very good at augmenting what humans do. Mm -hmm. uh, it, for most knowledge jobs, it's not that great yet for completely replacing what a human does end to end. Uh, so as a result, I think humans and people in the workforce who are able to use AI tools uh, to do their jobs better, faster, 
stronger, more efficiently. Uh, they are going to thrive. And uh, companies are going to do a lot more with less over time. And you can pick pretty much any function, you know, whether it's sales, marketing, customer support, customer success, operations, finance. And all of those, you'll see people who are able to use the best-in-class tools and deliver a lot more with better judgment, with better results. And they'll, they'll be the people who are using the latest and best-in-class of AI tools. Uh, and that, that's going to happen. I'd say there's not a single function or single industry I can think of. I think there's going to be temporal differences. Some functions like marketing, sales are adopting AI faster, potentially, customer service mm-hmm. being another one. And mm-hmm. some maybe a little, some industries, for instance, maybe a little bit slower with regulations or just other reasons. But over time, if we take a 10 or 20 year view, I cannot think of an industry or a function where AI will not be very heavily used uh, to some reasonable level. So I think the winners and losers would be, I think the folks, the people that really adopt AI who are very malleable and are continuously on the lookout for what's next in this space and how they can take their craft further. They are the, I think they are going to do really, really well and they're going to be most sought after. I think generally, and that applies by the way to companies as well. I think in each industry, each segment, companies that are able to leverage AI to get ahead and think forward, they're going to do well and vice versa. Folks that are slow to adopt, uh, I think they're the they're the ones that uh, you know may not do as well. I mean, I think things like you know prompting, learning prompts, and kind of managing the AI, maybe a stronger skill, right? Just like learning, you know, Excel or you know, Microsoft Office. But I mean, I mean, wouldn't you say that's maybe just a you know five year skill that would probably fade out into some other uh, you know as the kind of AI is adopt and, and uh, evolve? Uh, you know, prompting is probably the biggest thing right now. But I wonder, you know, what, what do you kind of see? That's kind of the next thing that uh, you need to understand to be able to manage manage an AI effectively. Yeah, I'd say, you know, the prompting may end up, my view is right now, prompting skills may end up being relatively temporary because I think the engines will get smarter. And Mm. uh, so you won't have to be as smart in writing the prompt. Uh, Engines will get smarter in really deriving the context and what you want. And also, I think a lot of specific workflow software is being built as we speak, which mm. abstracts that out. It abstracts out the prompting. So, you mm. know, if you have a salesperson writing lots of emails which are personalized and, you know, which is taking a lot of data that you already have with people that you've interacted with in the past and it's able to now write uh, emails to those people like a human would or like you would. So, there are tools which do that, which are already, you know, uh, there. There are similar tools in customer service, or again, you can pick any workflow that tool's being built. So I think people that are able to identify those tools and be able to leverage those and focus their energies on, you know, one level higher on tasks like, you know, on judgment, on mm-hmm. uh, the actual interface with the person and other innately human skills. I think th- those people are going to do better. And so I'd say, yeah, prompting is a very important skill in the near term, mm-hmm. but longer mm-hmm. term, I think it's that ability to be malleable and that ability to learn uh, new softwares, continuously tracking what's the latest best-in-class software in your field that's coming out and uh, be able to adopt it quickly. I think mm-hmm. that's pretty key. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, still the soft skills are still yet to be able to be replaced, right? Um, but then, you know, the, so productivity is going to be, you know, on... on like un- unbelievable here. Well, what do you kind of foresee as happening in the market when we have, you know, hundred times 
the engineers and hundred times the marketers who are now using AI and leveraging that to be you know un unprecedentedly productive in their workforce. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think I do think we'll see that we'll see the pro you know proverbial ten x engineer becoming the hundred x engineer with uh, the right tools. And I've actually written about this. And we'll see hundred x marketers and hundred x salespeople. And uh, I think what may happen is uh, you know there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of companies. And if you ask any employee in a large company, and I've been in those shoes both in both larger and smaller companies in the past. Uh, there's always a list, a very long list of things that can be done that you want to do, but there's just not enough hours in the day and enough cycles to do them. So a lot of those things will start to get done faster. And I think in general, companies and work will start to move faster. More projects will get done because people are being more productive. So if you just take software, I think the pace of creating software will just continue to increase at a faster pace now because mm -hmm. software is getting written faster. We were just, I think, constrained by how long it actually took to write all those lines of code. But now a lot of the basic software is getting written by all these co-pilots and the smart engineers and architects can really focus on, you know, the architecture and the actual design. And uh, and then also others and the product team can focus on the business skills and all the other, you know, things they had on the roadmap. The roadmaps just get accelerated and these are in the end just able to deliver more value to their customers. So I'd say that's the, so I'm definitely glass, glass half, half full on, on this one, uh, where I do think at least in the near to midterm, uh, that there's enough and more things to be done, which will get done by these proverbial, you know, 100x engineers and marketers. Yeah, I just, I just wonder if they're, you know, if they're getting 100 times the result, are they getting the same value or, or compensation, right? Or is it just, you know, I feel maybe just me squeezing more out of less as well, right? Where you're using tools, but, you know, maybe humans don't get the same output that businesses do, right? Yeah. You know, and what that might mean from a business and then eventually customer perspective is that mm -hmm. if businesses are able to create software and products for a lot less, uh, the beneficiary in the end is the end customer of those businesses, whether it's another business or the end consumer. So, and, you know, we've seen this broadly, you know, tech is deflationary um, mm. and, and in a good way where makes more things accessible to a wider set of people if it can build more things faster. So I think we will see that impact that uh, we will see more tools, more software, more newer products being available to mm. people at a lower cost as a result of this. And, and then more things will get built, which is how I think we've seen the world in the last 30 to 50 years for sure uh, with uh, in the internet era and, and the tech era and before that with other kinds of products. Yeah, like the this is kind of the industrial revolution, but in a, in a different yeah. in a different sense. Yeah, yeah, exciting yeah, times. Cars became cheaper. You know, the whole world drives cars now, but uh, you know, no one drove a car hundred years back, or very few people did. So, yeah. so I'll see, I think we'll see a lot more of that, where a lot of things become affordable. Uh, yeah, wider set of people. Yeah, flights as well. Yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, was, yeah not a bad thing. Um, so last question here, Anupam, before we get into the rapid fire questions, which is. You know, if I'm a founder looking to pitch uh, you guys at Emergent Ventures, what can I do to improve my startup pitch for most likelihood of success in raising with you guys? And then, uh, what types of companies are, are are you seeing that are able to raise successfully from you? Yeah, uh, I'd say you know the biggest game changer uh, from an investor maybe just ten hours 
for a founder that's looking to raise can be just studying the process of fundraising in a little bit more detail. And I'd say, uh, I'm happy to go into some areas on this, but uh, there's this actually a lot of resources out there now. And I think today's founders are in a fortunate, uh, you know, just 10 years back or 15 years back when I started in venture, uh, there weren't actually as many resources. But today there's so many podcasts, so many, uh, you know, blog posts and others uh, which are available that if someone just takes 10 hours to read the best content on fundraising, uh, that, mm. that can be the best use of their time. And there's a lot of different things, which some of which I've written about, many of which I talk about around how to run a process, around how to specifically talk about your market and how attractive that market can be, how to talk about your product, how to spread out those first 30 minutes that you get with an investor in terms of your pitch, in terms of time allocation. How do you create a specific you know process rather than just being a you know creating into the time bound milestone bound process versus just a you know a thing that doesn't have a specific timeline uh, i'd say yeah that's would be my suggestion is just taking 10 hours reading up a lot of things and maybe speaking with a few folks and one thing i recommend actually to founders is speak with five to ten successful founders who are just half a stage of one stage ahead of you uh, mm. don't, you know, of course, talk to people that have done an IPO if you can, but the most helpful advice often comes from those that are maybe six months, 12 months, 24 months ahead. Uh, so raising a seed round, talk to someone that raised a seed and maybe someone that raised a seed in Series A and maybe talk to five to 10 of those people. And then if you already have some investors, then definitely talk to those. And uh, I think that can be the best investor of time at the stage where you're going out for a fundraise is just learning more about fundraising if you haven't done it before. Yeah, excellent, excellent advice. Uh, so, so you know, you're helping companies find product market fit. They haven't found it yet, but they have some traction. Uh, is there some specific metrics or traction uh, that you're that you're looking for that that people can be aware of and narrow it down to see if they're a good fit with you? What you guys offer. So we actually invest uh, as early as uh, you know pre-idea stage, if you want to call it that, but certainly okay. PowerPoint stage. So we do not for. A certain level of revenue. I'd say our median company has close to zero or zero revenues at the time we invest. Okay. Uh, for us, it's really about the founder and the market. And I think we spoke about the founder a little bit earlier, the founding team. And on the market, it really has to be a market which we think is, or over a period of a couple of weeks, a few weeks, can get to an understanding, a deep understanding of that market, that there is a potential opportunity here to build a 100 million ERA business in the next seven plus years. Uh, and there's a lot of many different subcomponents to that, but in a nutshell, I'd say that, that, that's what we're looking for. And there's no real traction criteria, especially for a pre-seed round. And, and then of course we do seed and post-seed round as well. So there we are looking for some level of, uh, especially post-seed round, we're looking for some level of Customer traction, it doesn't have to be revenues necessarily, but we do look for, uh, you know, founders who've gone and spoken with a number of uh, customers. And so, you know, this is an exercise which a lot of great pre-seed founders have also done. With it. You know, it doesn't take a product to go and talk to 30 or 50 prospective customers. These days with LinkedIn and the era of data, you can, if uh, you know you know how to write cold emails or use your network, you can go and talk to 30, 40, 50 people in your target persona mm -hmm. and collect enough feedback from the market. And if you distill it well, that I think is a home run at that pre-seed, seed, sometimes even post-seed stage. If you've done that and have a pretty nuanced view 
of what's the state of the art today? How are, you know, what's the pain point? What are customers using today? Who's the exact champion or sponsor in the org chart uh, likely to be? Uh, are they likely to pay? Why would they pay? What's the ROI? Uh, if you form a view on that, that's what uh, really moves the needle, I'd say. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Uh, this is this has been awesome, Anupam. Are you ready for the the rapid fire questions, the second part of the show? Sure. Bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. Ready? All right. Love it. Uh, what's one activity you en- you enjoy outside of work, looking at deals, investing that that gets you into flow state? Yeah. If I had to pick one, I'd say for me it'll be running, which I don't do as much uh, anymore as uh, I like I'd like to. But yeah, certainly I'd say if I, you know, anything over a half hour run that puts me into that flow state and lets me, you know, reflect on things. Yeah, love it. What's uh, one piece of advice you wish you had known? And if you can go back, you would tell your the 25-year-old self. Yeah, one thing I'd say is take more calculated risks early on. Uh, mm. You know, and I did some of that, but uh, if I were giving someone advice, I'd say, uh, doing more of that. And I think there's obviously two aspects to that. Take risks, but take calculated risks early on. Does it get harder later on, right? Until, I guess, what's early on? Until or there's the more, there's more uh, you know, ROI on those risks the earlier you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case mm-hmm. of founders, for example, it would be you know, starting a company or going out on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so there's never a time where you're 100% confident that, hey, this is the idea or this is the time to jump in. Yeah. Uh, so if you are feeling the conviction, I'd say just, uh, you know, of course, on a calculated basis, if you think it's a good space, good idea that you're passionate about. And so just take the plunge and then, you know, things evolve from there. Yeah. Makes sense. What are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow your 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 firm, Emergent Ventures? Meaning, is there anything that keeps you up, up, keeps you up at night these days? You know, we're always, as seed investors, looking a few years out and at what's next and uh, investing behind you know those kind of things so you know we've been investing in ai for six seven years or more um so so yeah it's always about yeah you know what's next and uh intersecting with that and how can we help founders in that segment better uh, early on uh who or what are some of the best three resources this can be books or people or mentors or people you found the space who've been most instrumental to your success over these last few years yeah, I'd say too many to list. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of different resources, lots of different mentors, or people that I've learned from, have been in the fortunate position to be learning from. I'd say probably the most I've learned from is with the founders I work with and you know other investors that I work with. And then in terms of other resources on the web, I'd say it's an amazing time where there's so much insight that people are putting out on the public internet, uh, especially for you know software space and for founders more broadly. Uh, a lot of actually firms put out very good content, including, you know, Iconic, Insight, A16Z, some of the larger platform firms, I think, are putting out great content. So, which gives you a sense of what sort of best in class and what's happening with somewhat larger companies. So, you know what success looks like. Mm-hmm. And folks like, I think, Saster and Lemkin and others, they put out some good content on SaaS and early stage building. And uh, so, that's it. Lots, lots of different uh, pieces of content and it, I think evolves with time uh, the ones that I'm following and learning from. What does uh, success mean to you today, Anupam? You know, you've had great success as an entrepreneur. 
We've now, you know, involved and invested in over, you know, hundred million dollars over the last, you know, ten plus years. Um, you know, but it's personally business, financial life. There's no right answer. How do you measure what the success means to you today? Yeah. So this decade uh, in the 2020s, I'm working towards helping at least five founding teams get to 100 million ARR. That's mm-hmm. that's my personal goal. So I have seven more years. Uh, I'm involved with about you know, handful of companies actively investing uh, and and hoping that I can help at least five, hopefully more, uh, get to that 100 million ARR this decade. $500 million companies is, is what you're aiming for. And that's that's your, okay. Yep, wow. from, you know, close to zero to that $100 yeah. million ARR mark. Beautiful. Awesome. This, this has been a really interesting and great episode. Is there anything else you want to add here or... Um, to, for our listeners, and so where can our founders get in touch with you? Uh, sorry, where can our founders get in touch with you? Learn more about you, and uh, maybe look to pitch their company if they're interested to work with you. Yeah, absolutely. We always, uh, you know, happy to hear from great founders. It's easy to look me up on LinkedIn and read up more about what we do on our website at Mergent.vc. And uh, my email is pretty easy to figure out, uh, but. But yeah, my sessions don't uh, add uh, investor emails to sales loft or outreach sequences and do it impersonalized with 500 founders. <laughs> so personalize the message. I read every email that comes in, every note that comes in, but I cannot respond yeah. to it, but I do read all of them. And if you personalize it and, uh, you know, if your vision is compelling, then I think you can you can get meetings with investors, including us. Love it. Yeah. Say, say you actually, you know, heard the podcast and you heard it here. And I'm sure you'll, you'll uh, respond back at least very soon. Yep. Yeah. That sounds like a awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you sharing today. Thanks a lot, Akil. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, Get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.